thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Maneuverability was impossible at that point. The aircraft started to roll. I ordered the ejection. My navigator was first, and then I went off the airplane. The airplane crashing less than a second. When we pulled the handle, we were at 30 feet. Hello and welcome to episode 170 of the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I am your usual host, Vincent Aiello, call sign Jello, but this week we have a guest co-host helping out. He'll be along with his guest in a few minutes and we'll talk more about that after some quick announcements and listener questions. Anyway, I hope you all are doing well and enjoying your last few days of spring as we get close to summer here. And uh, let's see, last episode 169, boy, that was a big hit. You might have heard it. It featured my friend, Brett Crozier, retired Navy captain, former helicopter pilot turned jet pilot. And then, of course, he was in the news back at the beginning of COVID. Well, we enjoyed that discussion, and I already read his book, Surf When You Can. Enjoyed that. I highly recommend you pick it up. And here's an interesting little uh, tidbit for you. The former acting secretary of the Navy emailed the show right after that episode came out, and he offered to come on and tell his side of the story and suggested I read his book. So we'll see where that goes. But uh, we had a pretty good uh, back and forth email exchange. So anyway, big thanks to uh, Brett Crozier for coming on the show and everybody who does, really. Now, that episode came out the same day my wife and I celebrated our silver anniversary. Those of you who follow the show on Instagram might have seen some photographs of our wedding 25 years ago on board USS John F. Kennedy. We got married on board an aircraft carrier right back at the One Wire, where I spent most of my time landing anyway. And it was a lot of fun. And for all of our friends and family and relatives who visited, many of them had never seen the ocean, let alone a big Navy aircraft carrier. So that was a lot of fun. And we were out for sushi uh, celebrating our 25th because last month we already went off to the Turks and Caicos for a bigger event. The fighterpilotpodcast.com website is different. If you go over to that now, you will see a new look. It's not completely done. We were trying to get all our musings over there, but the glossary is up to date and the shop page is coming along as well. Check it out. Hopefully you like what you see and feel free to give us feedback. There is a way to submit comments and questions right there on the website. And then lastly, I hate to end with a little bit of a sad note, but if you follow us again on social media, you probably saw that our episode 108 guest on the P-38, and that was with Boat, Mr. Marshall Hanna passed away in June, just a couple months from his 101st birthday. Obviously, our condolences to his family. Boy, what a life and uh, what a great story that gentleman had on that episode with Boat, talking about flying the P-38 and the bombing site and being a prisoner of war and Yeah, we hate to see him go, but that is, I think, the nature of that generation. And we're trying to catch as many of them as we can uh, before. All right, a couple listener questions. This one is from Janik, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, who says, I recently listened to FPP 165, How Military Forces Help and Heal. And what caught my attention is the part 
that some of the helicopters had to be moved from Bahrain quickly to Sumatra for the humanitarian assistance and disaster relief effort. My question is, how are the aircraft moved so quickly? Is it by air, like we see in pictures of a C-5 Galaxy nose opening with helicopters inside? Or is it on ships, kind of like how escort carriers carried planes to and from places in World War II? Well, Janik, I don't think we generally send a whole lot of aircraft via the Air Force. We can if necessary, but that's not typically the way we do it. But I wasn't entirely sure, so I asked our guest, Alan Worthy, from that episode, and he confirmed my suspicions, which is the USS Essex happened to be in the Arabian or Persian Gulf, however you refer to it, and it pulled Pierside in Bahrain and loaded up the CH-53s, or MH-53s, I guess maybe it was. At any rate, I think to the last point of your question, Janik, we don't necessarily have escort carriers and different types of carriers these days like we had in World War II, but we can load extra aircraft on if the ship is making a transpack or transatlantic and we need to get some there or back. So there you go. All right, next question is from Samuel. I am in the process of applying to the U.S. Air Force and Navy for a pilot slot. I understand Operational tempos always depend on airframe, mission, current world situation for both services. And I'm wondering if in the Navy, as things simmer down in the Middle East, the amount of and length of deployments is changing for carrier-based aviators. Maybe a more general version of the question might be, how does carrier aviation life change as the political world shifts? Well, so for everyone else, you should know that I emailed Samuel and basically said, Hey, look, dude, if you are worried about op tempo, you're probably joining with the wrong motivations. You join to serve and you join for the opportunity to fly and you stick around usually for the people. But that being said, I might have read too much into his question. And his point is a valid one. And Samuel, there's just no way to know, right? I mean, the world situation is going to change. Nobody knows how it will change or what might be necessary. If peace breaks out all over, then yeah, we could go back to every couple of years, a six-month deployment just for the sake of being out there. But if things in the South China Sea heat up, then you could go out there for eight, 10 months or more. I don't think that should be the reason why you choose the Navy or the Air Force. I think you should try to identify with the service that best resonates with you. Talk to people from both. See what makes the most sense to you and go and give it your all and just accept the fact that once you commit yourself to a cause bigger than you, you are just a cog in that cause. And so they will use you as they see fit, even possibly sending you in wave after wave until someone gets ashore, like on June 6th, 1944. So that comes with the territory. And I think you need to be ready for that when you or anyone signs up to serve in the military. All right, last question is from Stu, who's from the UK. He says, do you get a say in which squadron you are posted to or even which coast you will get posted to after flight training? Or is that completely down to the needs of the Navy? I seem to recall you saying you could state your preferred aircraft type depending on performance in flight school, but do you get any further input beyond this? Well, Stu, I only have my one experience to base it on, and it's 20-plus years old by now. And when I was a student at VMFAT 101 in El Toro, which is now closed and long gone, and that is a Marine squadron, but I was a Navy student. Towards the end of my FRS training, I submitted a, in fact, I think at that time, it was just a very casual, hey, just email the big XO and tell them what you want. And so I put down F-18s Lemoore, F-18s Japan, F-18s Cecil, and I didn't even need to say F-18s because that's what I had just flown in the FRS. And I got my first choice, if you hold it upside down, Cecil. And at the time, I didn't really go in knocking on the door. Hey, what the heck? They have openings here and there. They do their best. Some of it could be performance. I don't know. I think I finished reasonably well. You just kind of take what comes. 
Now, you didn't specifically ask this, but I'll answer it anyway. As you get more and more senior in your Navy career, you can talk to what's called the detailer in the Navy. I think in the Marine Corps, they call it the monitor, and I don't know what the Air Force calls it. But at any rate, there's a person like me. I could have gone and done this, but I didn't. But again, if you listen to the Crozier episode, you might have heard him say that he did that. He went to Millington, Tennessee, and was the detailer for young helicopter pilots. And you can ask them, hey, what have you got? Or this is what I want to do. What do you think? And there's different ways they can work with you. They can either delay your timing, perhaps. Hey, if you leave a little later, we have a job where you're hoping. Or if you leave a little sooner. Or they just tell you, hey, look, this is what we have. Take your best pick. Take it or leave it kind of thing. But yeah, it might be different these days coming out of flight school or the FRS. But my guess is you put in your dream sheet and the Navy says, that's cute. Hold my beer. Here's what you get. And off you go. I hope that helps, Stu, and uh, appreciate everyone's questions for right now. If you have a question for the show, you can send it via social media, or you can email us, questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com. Our phone number is still on hiatus for right now. We're trying to decide if we miss it or not. If not, we might just retire it for good, because right now we're paying a little monthly support fee to keep it kind of in the back burner. But we might bring it back if we do more of these types of audio episodes where I catch you up on what's going on in everyone's lives and answer these questions. All right. Well, with that, let's get to the interview. Now, I have to confess something. I have not listened to this one. (laughs) As I said at the top, it is with a guest co-host, and you might remember our buddy Craig Snyder, call sign Crunch. He was on the show way back talking about surface-to-air missiles, and then he was one of the co-hosts of our sister show, the F-14 Tomcast. And so we had a gentleman from the Italian Air Force, a retired general, who reached out and said, hey, I've got cool stories and would like to come on the show, but I live in Norfolk. And I said, well, I don't know how I'll get out there and make that work. So we put two and two together and Crunch was willing. So they found a studio and they recorded the interview you're about to hear. There's also the video version on our YouTube channel. So with that, let's both enjoy it together. I will not be back afterwards just because I need to move on to other things. But maybe on the next episode at the beginning, I'll tell you what I thought about it. And always you can email us or leave comments on social media as well. Anyhow, since I won't be back, I want to thank you for listening to the show and for your support all these years. We are midway through our sixth year as a podcast, and I am definitely going to keep it going for another year because as you Patreon supporters know who get to read a chapter a month, I'm working on my memoirs. And so once the book is ready, I want to keep the show going so I can obviously socialize it that way and use the megaphone of the podcast to keep it going. But no, I do appreciate everybody hanging on with us and listening to our different topics. And with that, let's listen to Crunch talk with General Bellini about flying the tornado and being a guest of the Iraqis in Desert Storm. Here we go. Today on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, you may remember me from the F-14 Tomcast as well as uh, being on Jello show previously. And today we have an amazing guest. We are joined today by General Gianmarco Bellini of the Italian Air Force, who lives here in Virginia Beach. He is the Honorary Council of Italy to the United States, and he is joining us today to tell us some stories. Welcome, sir. Thank you, Greg, for this introduction. You know, I live in Virginia Beach from uh, 2005, actually, with my wife, and uh, we have uh, no children on our own, but we had children that are older, and uh, they live away, so... We don't have any cats or animals. <laughs> no cats? <laughs> no cats, no pets or anything. And uh, generally, I do my work as an honorary consul, but I, I also, like um, I did all my life, I love to fly, so I fly a lot. 
I fly. You still fly today? I still fly. I'm I'm going Friday. I fly to um, Cincinnati and then I'm starting my trips there back and forth. And what are you flying? I fly the uh, Boeing 737. Oh, so the, do I. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, for uh, Atlas Air. I yeah. did not know that. And uh, it's been almost five years that I've been with, uh, with that company. Before that, I was flying for uh, United Express with Mesa, uh-huh. flying from uh, base in, um, in uh, Washington, Dallas. Oh, no kidding. Oh, with this CRJ 700. Right. That was a busy, busy period. <laughs> one, year, one year, I made almost 1,000 hours in a one year. Wow. And for those who don't know, a thousand hours in a year of hard time, that's your limit. You time out. Yeah, exactly. I didn't realize that you were flying for Atlas. I assumed that you were just resting on your laurels as the honorary. No, 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 no. I love to fly. And uh, I flew as a flying instructor in the Hampton area from um, Hampton Road Executive, Norfolk, basically. And I flew with this school for about five years. So interesting. I've always been busy with uh, flying. And uh, it's something that once you start doing, you can never stop. You just love it. I just love it. That's it. There's nothing. Money can be an issue, yes, I know, but the passion is the the thing that uh, makes you doing stuff like a real pilot. (laughs) Well, if you're flying the 737, you are a real, you still have to fly that airplane. I've flown F-14s, F-18s, T-45s. I've flown the Airbus A320 family and the 737 family. And the 737 is of a transport category airplane. You still have to hand fly that. And uh, sometimes I still land a little hard. <laughs> Sorry about yes. that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Every time it happens. You, know. you don't, probably keep, don't I, deal with a lot of passenger complaints, No, 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 though. no. I do not. Boxers <laughs> don't complain, and they, they're always happy. They don't make a, a, an applause after the, you landed, but it doesn't matter. We can, we can live with that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I was always saying that uh, any landing where you don't break anything is a good landing. <laughs> All right. So you're still flying today because you love it so much. Let's go in the Wayback Machine. So back when you were a young guy, where are you from? Well, let's tell everybody. Obviously, you're from Italy. Where are you from? And how did you find yourself in the Italian Air Force? Well, my family, nobody in my family went through a military or uh, being a pilot or any, not even thinking about pilots in the military. Nobody did that career in, uh, in all my family. So I was the only one that uh, during my high school, I start having interest about uh, airplanes more than anything else, you know. So I said, maybe I can try that. And then I, I sent my application to the Italian Air Force. Main time, because the time was in September. So before that, I joined also the university as a doctor. I wanted to be a doctor. Because I said, if they don't take me into the academy, I will be doing a, a doctor. They called me and they, and they started this, this career, basically. Flew on the basic flight training for uh, the beginning of the academy course. And then uh, at the end of the uh, three years, because it lasted three years, we have been sent to the United States for pilot training, the advanced pilot training. So okay. I graduated in Laughlin Air Force Base. And after that, there was still a program in, in the U.S. Air Force. It was called Fighter Leading Training that was based in uh, Holomon Air Force Base in okay. New Mexico. So they sent me over there for another six months. 
I flew the T-38 Talon with a box of uh, again and uh, flying in some of the uh, air-to-air maneuver and uh, air-to-ground training. So it was a, a lot of fun. I heard the T-38 is. A, I've never it flown the T-38. It's beautiful airplane to fly. I tell you. And uh, I, I, I afterburning supersonic trainer. Beautiful, yeah. beautiful airplane. After that, I've been sent to Italy, so graduate and everything, and uh, sent back to Italy, going through the OCU in Tuscany. OCU, what the, is uh, that? It's a school for a transition to another aircraft. Ah, okay. So the OCU for the F-104. Okay. So I, I flew the F-104 for two and a half years, almost three years, as a fighter bomber, though. So you, can you imagine, single engine, pure fighter, small wings, like... Uh, it doesn't have any wings, basically. It's just a little bit. It's of a big thing. engine. Yeah, it's, jo- it's only a it's big engine. engine. Yeah. We were flying low level and uh, on a base northeast of Italy, ready to go against the Warsaw Pact during the Cold War, you know, basically. What year uh, are we talking right now? Uh, we are in the 1983. Okay. 83, 84. Because I finished the course in 82, so I, I was sent to the, to the base in northeast uh, of Italy. 82, 83, and beginning of 84, my squadron transitioned to Tornado. So everybody was sent to England in uh, Cottesmore, which is in the Midlands of, uh, of England, close okay. to Leicestershire, that area. Nice place and uh, beautiful training. So we transitioned to Tornado, and basically I flew all my career on, uh, on that aircraft. And so that was in mid '80s. You transitioned to tornado. Yeah, 80, in 84, 84, January '85. We transitioned to tornado, and so from '85 to 2002. That's pretty neat. So, yeah. in the tornado, if if memory serves, it was built by a European consortium. Yeah, it, it was uh, the British, the Italians, and the Germany. They all uh, built parts of, of the aircraft and then assembled together. It was a nice airplane. Especially the training part was very interesting because we train all the three nations in the same base in, right. in England. You know, oh, okay. With an instructor from uh, all three nations, basically. Mm-hmm. So we had uh, everybody coming to Cottesmore, that was the base in England, and they were trained exactly the same way before going back to their own nation, basically. So, and I was instructing there for three years. Okay. So, yeah. So now, it, some of our listeners may remember uh, probably four years ago, Jello interviewed a guest. I think it was episode forty-seven about the tornado. He had somebody on to talk about that. I know that there are, they talked through all the different variants, and you were flying. I know there's a fighter bomber, an electronic attack, and it's something else. Yeah. The, basically, the fighter was something that was not really a, a big success, you know, because it was very difficult to maneuver an airplane that is designed to fly low level. You can really go thirty thousand feet. You cannot. Uh, so it's it's, it's a design for it's, low it's level design, bombing. That's it. Is designed for low level. They made a little bit of uh, changes. Uh, modification of the uh, initial structure of the airplane, but it, it was not designed to be a fighter. So mm-hmm. it was designed to be a fighter bomber. Very low level, very uh, stable platform that was absolutely stable. There were no GPS at that time, but the uh, system was so precise that you can drop a bomb without seeing anything. And uh, Off the inertial off, navigation yes, system? Yes, from the inertial navigation system. Wow. 
basically a computer that was taking off all the errors and uh, adjust the errors, and uh, it was it was a pretty smart. Wow! So the airplanes I flew, our INS and the Tomcat was you know, we called that the Driftmaster two thousand. It was so yeah. bad <laughs> at had, times. We had, we had, the early the, ones that is. We had the same thing with uh, with the F one hundred four. We right. had an inertia navigator in the F one hundred four. Nobody were looking at that because yeah. it was way off all the, all the time. So oh, it was, wow. it was wow. impossible. So you ha- you were flying, I believe it's the IDS version. How does that version compare? Forgive me if I say it wrong here, but how does that compare to like the the GR one through GR four? How does that? Uh, there's a lot of difference. Yeah. For the GR four, for example, the I'm not sure because it was mainly a British version of the uh, Tornado. He had a different weaponry, different uh, way to. He had a laser. Oh, uh, you didn't have a laser. We we did have a laser in the pod. But we couldn't have a la- They had a laser in the airplane. It was capable of uh, painting any anything with a laser from the cockpit, which is not something that we could do, except when we had uh, the uh, the pod with the with a bomb on there. But it was not uh, our version was not uh, completed with these things. So, all right. So that takes us up to the mid '80s, and then we fast forward five six years, and Saddam invades Kuwait. All sorts of stuff happens. That was 1990, right? Yes. And then January, I believe it was 18th of 1991, you had a mission. I believe it was January 19th. Is that right? Or, or was it, it was, day, January 18th? It One was of, January 18th. January, the first day. So the, the first day was the, uh, I think it was the 16th or the 17th. I think oh, it was okay. the 17th. But uh, we have been uh, put on a ATO, which is the uh, task order, mm-hmm. the night after that because we had some kind of uh, internal issue with, uh, with the government and all this, this stuff, you know. But So in uh, the night of the 18th, actually the night from the, of the 17th to the 18th, we did our mission. And where were you flying out of? We were flying out of uh, Al-Dafram, which is in the United Arab Emirates, down in the south, because oh, by the time we get uh, to the coalition, all bases were uh, full of uh, aircraft. You know, everybody took right. the closest place. And uh, mm-hmm. so we deploy eight tornadoes. Then they become 10 at the, in Al-Dafra. Mm-hmm. We train from there with uh, some unit from of the F-16 from the U.S. Then we had... So this uh, is in the buildup. So a couple months before January, you fly yes, over there. Is exactly, that right? Okay. Exactly. We were going there in September 1990. It was already close to the deadline happening in, uh, in November when the United Nations said, if you don't withdraw within uh, the 15th of uh, uh, January 1991, we will start the operation. We will start right. use of force, you know. We were there in, uh, in November and we trained with uh, the F-16, the United Arab Emirates, and uh, with the tanker. We had uh, a unit of uh, the Air Force tanker. Which which type of tanker? Do you remember? It was a uh, seven or seven. Okay, so be. the KC one thirty five. KC one thirty five. With the yes, with the boom. Yep. And uh, at the end, because we don't have a capability of, uh, we don't refuel with the boom. We refuel with the probe and the basket. Like know? we do in the Navy. Exactly. That's, exactly. So that's if I may way. shake your hand, sir, that's the that's, way men do it. That's the right <laughs> way to do it. You know. <laughs> And uh, so, but uh, it, it was pretty tough because 
that little thing, you know, the little yeah. piece of tube that you have uh, between the boomer and the, in the basket is very unstable. So you have to make the loop and keep it uh, in a certain way. I mean, it's, it's tough. It is tough. I, I have done, uh, I could do a story time and talk about uh, the first time I tanked on a KC-135 was my first day in the fleet in VF-32. And I, I remember to this day because Trigger Kelly was my flight lead and Pink Floyd was his real, he was the skipper. And he looks at me and says, hey, new guy, don't F it up, right? That was his wisdom to me that day as we were going out to hit the tanker and the KC-135. And it's that thing, it's got that basket, you put your probe out. And as you move up, if you go too slow, your bow wave, yeah, the pressure then, wave moves it away and then it moves around and, and then, then you hit and then it. you hit it and then you hit it in one side. So you have to come back yep. and do it again. Yeah, at the end, uh, we were pretty, in good shape with that you know we we train a lot and uh, it was okay uh, and then uh, the 15th uh, of january the the war started nobody was thinking about that i was in my room a small room with my with a navigator that was in the in the square and we were thinking how can it happen these things you know how can be a war in this century i mean it's it's unbelievable and uh, we thought it, that we were preparing for another big uh, thing that would never happen which is uh, which was our hope also but it was not like that i mean it, everything started the the 15 the night over that the f-16 start moving from there and then the night after we start ourselves you know with uh, in that mission and so you go on, you launch out of Aldafra. Aldafra, yes. Hit a tanker over Saudi Arabia. No, it was over the sea, which was not a good idea because the range was between us fifteen thousand to twenty-one thousand, something like Pretty that. Pretty low, actually. Pretty low. Yeah. And the uh, turbulence at that point was so big, we couldn't get through. Our flight was not able to refuel. And, uh, because the basket was because the basket just... was crazy, and uh, we tried to get there. Actually, my leader made it, but uh, he couldn't get any any fuel because he, he broke his probe before that. You know, uh, when he tried, yeah. because we try, we give uh, ourselves every fifteen minutes time to get to close to the tanker, and then trying to connect to get fuel. If you busted those 10 minutes, you move away and you have the other one trying to get. Otherwise, we couldn't make anyone. You basically had to give yourself we, a we chance rota- and then we, let somebody else try. And then, then somebody else is trying. So when it's, it was my turn, I made it. I don't know why. I, I, I just made it. And uh, I got all my 3,000, almost 4,000 kilograms of fuel and I move away. So I wait for my, my leader to get... Uh, and tried to, so he did, and uh, he couldn't uh, refuel because the probe was broken. So at that point, I decided to to continue because the mission was at night, low level. There was no visual protection because at night there's not much you can protect, you know, especially in the in the desert there. But I was confident that uh, all the protection, the electronic protection, was in place, which was not because nobody could refuel at that uh, period, you know? So you th- so, you were supposed to have electronic suppression so, of any so air defenses? I, I, I supposed have to it. have, uh, uh, I was expecting somebody that uh, was all the uh, electronic protection and all the, uh, they, they were there, but they were not. And when I start my run to the target, 
actually before that, when I started descending over the sea, I called the AWACS, the coordinator there, and uh, I called him twice, two or three times, because he, he didn't answer. And I told him, hey, uh, this is Legion 1-4, which was my call sign. I'm going inbound, and uh, I, I'm, I'm continuing the mission. And he said, Roger. So for me, that was the okay to proceed, you know, and uh, there was no other strange situation going on. So I said, I'm going to go. I'm going to have all my protection and everything, and nobody's going to. And uh, it was not that, that case. Everybody was concentrating on uh, my aircraft. So there was not, nobody else flying, so it was all, all the guns were pointing and, at you. And in fact, uh, approaching the coast of uh, Kuwait, because our target was in Kuwait, it was between uh, close to the border with uh, Iraq, and there was a deposit of ammunition that was kept by the Iraqi, of course, and so we had to manage to hit that target, you know. And approaching the coast of uh, Kuwait, the AAA start to blow all over the place, you know. I said, oh, well, look, this poor guy is going to be, <laughs> they are hitting him for sure, you know, this poor guy. Because <laughs> it's he, all over there. Yeah, <laughs> but he, he, they were all shooting at me, and uh, that was something interesting. <laughs> uh, we were going at 550 knots at uh, 100. Maybe, 100 feet at and, night. At night. Yes, and you didn't yeah, have we, night vision we, goggles at no, that time. No, we had right? uh, we had the uh, terrain following, which is a, a system that uh, built uh, was basically tornado was built on the terrain following, and uh, you could get the aircraft down to two hundred feet, two hundred feet a point nine mark, and the aircraft was doing everything by itself. You don't have to touch it. The other thing, you can go lower if you disconnect the autopilot and use the uh, radar returns that you have on, uh, on your side as a map return. The system is designed to find any type of obstacle, you know, on the ground. So, and you, if you maintain this line within, uh, you can go down to 100 feet. So that's what we so, did. So what you did. That's what we At did. At 550 knots. At 550 knots, yeah. That, that's impressive. That was fast. <laughs> at night so we dropped the bomb and uh with the bomb i i order also i ask my navigator to drop also the the tanks because the tanks were almost empty the external tanks so i can get more maneuverability and uh, when he dropped the tanks the aircraft gained a little bit of uh, altitude mm -hmm. so i start descending again and he was giving me all the altitude from the terrain and uh, and thing and when we get uh, basically wings level, going toward the uh, sea again, enjoying, trying to go back to the tanker and go back to the to Aldafra, AAA hit my tailor on one of my tailor on the right one, and it took uh, almost forty percent out of the tailor. The tailor is like a, a, an aileron for a normal airplane, but uh, we use the tailor as a elevator and uh, as an aileron as well that's the way the tornado is, is designed tailoron yeah and uh, it took uh, one of these maneuverability was impossible at that point the aircraft started to roll it rolled the first time completely i tried to contrast it using the the, the cloche the you know and trying to contrast them nothing changed in the uh, speed of uh, of a turning 
So when we returned back, I ordered the ejection. I pulled the handle. My navigator goes first because the sequence is, uh, mm-hmm. is done in that way, and then I went off the airplane. The airplane is crashing less than a second. Because you're at 100, less than uh, 100 feet yeah, probably we at this were, point. When we uh, pulled the handle, we were at 30 feet. 30 feet. Wow. Okay. So uh, that's why, like a second-story uh, building. Yes. And uh, all this data came out from the crash recorder, which was uh, recovered by a crew of uh, British that uh, swept all the area after the war to collect all the uh, remaining of uh, their tornado because they lost seven tornadoes, one on every night, for seven nights. And then they started doing some uh, high-level, medium-level bombing, which was then safe because you didn't have any problem there. So they found uh, part of uh, the wreckage of my airplane. They collected the crash recorder, gave it to our authorities in uh, the Air Force, and uh, from there they study all the uh, all the data of the, of the crash and everything. That's why I know about that's the thirty feet, thirty feet, and uh, the speed and all the other stuff. Wow, that's impressive. Because otherwise you'd be like, I have no idea. It's I dark have no out. idea. Yeah, it was yeah. dark. So we found the crash, or the British. The British. They found the uh, the crash. They make a picture. I got all the pictures. Everything. The the two engines. The airplane crash very close to the command post of uh, this AAA, probably. Yeah. was not probably the one that kills us, but yeah. probably one of those. So they, and they found part of my equipment also in this uh, command post. Part Stuff of my, they had retrieved. So they, they probably captured us, kept us in the, into that uh, command post for a while. They took all our stuff and they gave us um, the yellow jacket for POW, you know, the one that uh, has been seen uh, during, during that period. So now you ejected, you landed, were you conscious? No, okay. I don't remember. You don't remember? I don't remember. The thing I probably, because the, the first, my navigator went out from the cockpit with uh, 16 degrees of bank, and uh, I left the cockpit at 47 degrees of bank. So it was very close to 90 degrees of bank, which is probably at that time I would probably be crushed into, into Un- the sand. Unsurvivable. Unsurvivable. Right. So I was very, very lucky on that. We landed, I don't remember, the first four or five days. Of wow. The, yeah. There is uh, something coming up sometimes, especially when I feel some uh, smell, strange smell from the, in the air. That's when it remembers me something. From those but, four or five days, yes, you'll suddenly have yes, a memory. So, some kind of memory, but nothing. Really? Is nothing. it like some food or a Maybe the smell. Must? The smell was the thing that really kept me wondering. It probably is, is, is connected to something that happens that period. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided 
with design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoraviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoraviation.com careers. Visit today. So for five, four or five days, we, I don't know. There's some records, I could reconstruct some of the time because with me actually for a, Two or three days, there was a, a Kuwaiti pilot on the A-4 that was uh, shut down the same night after me, and we spent some time together. So he was talking to me and say, hey, I remember you. You were there at that time in that uh, cell that you were calling for somebody to give you some kind of uh, water or things, you know, and... Uh, I reconstruct some of the stuff, but I couldn't uh, really, I don't really remember that period completely. Then after that, I, I remember everything, every single moment. So somewhere around the four or five days? After the four or five days. In the main time in that period, we were traveling. We, they brought us from uh, Kuwait to Basra. Basra is uh, yes, down in the southern part the of south. Iraq. Yeah. Then on, on the, from Basra to, um, to Baghdad. And uh, we stopped at one of the um, army base, basically, with uh, this guy told me that we were kept into this uh, NCO officers club, uh, NCO club of uh, the Iraqi. And uh, we were questioned and uh, interrogated by during that period, which I was not in a very good help for that time because I was not conscious. So. so this was in the first four or five days. Four, you were four, being interrogated. Days. You don't remember that. I don't remember that. Wow. I assume it was harsh interrogation. I think so, because uh, always the, uh, Mohammed uh, Mubarak, the, the guy that, uh, the pilot that was Kuwaiti pilot, he told me that uh, we were beating quite a lot mm. during that period. So then after that, they took us to Baghdad, and we stayed in Baghdad for almost all the time in this uh, big building, which was a, a building of the uh, Republican Guard. And underneath, on the bottom, probably a couple of uh, floors below that, there were prisons. So the prisons were basically into the ground, and uh, we had only a small uh, window that was looking at the... And you could see from the window there was... uh, We were at the base of the ground, basically, so we were underneath the ground for most of the time. We stayed there until the 23rd of February. The building was hit by uh, as, a, as a target, basically, and they, it was completely destroyed. With you in it? With, with us in it, because we were more than 20, 25, probably, at that point. Mm-hmm. And uh, fortunately, the fact that it was underground, we didn't have anybody killed in that, uh, maybe. So the whole building's coming down over the top of you, you were okay all over in the basement. The place, and uh, we, we stay in the, in the basement, and there was and we survived. And then after that, they brought us in three or four different uh, prisons for a few days. They just kept moving you around? Kept, kept moving yeah. us, and then, and then they freed us on the 3rd of uh, March. So let's back that up. So when that building was hit as a target, 
do you think it had anything to do with the fact that you all were there? Or no. They probably had no idea. Otherwise, they, they wouldn't have had no, no idea. Okay. And then they moved you around to different places. places. Was, was this the Republican Guard? That had you, or was this regular army? What uh, I think the Republican Guard, because they were interrogating us all the time, and uh, it was not an easy interrogation at that time, you know. And they were beating us and uh, interrogating us. So. so pretty brutal, pretty straightforward. Yeah, they would yeah. just it's beat me, you with a they, rifle or yeah, yeah, something. They they were tough, especially because they convention, the you know, Geneva Convention, Geneva Convention, and uh, other thing they protect the prisoner of war, you know? And they require that uh, the entity that keeps them should uh, give uh, to the other part information about uh, condition. My family never know if yeah, I they, was alive or not. They now. never communicated to Absolutely the Red Cross not, or anything, not, nothing, which nothing. is how it's normally done. Which right. is normally what should be done as a Geneva Convention, which is, doesn't matter if you are didn't uh, sign for this convention. It's a law. It's a, it's a they just real. chose not to listen. So, And they told us also. I, they told me clearly, we are a third world country and we don't apply the Geneva Convention. They, they told me. Were they communicating with you in Italian? No, no, in English. In English? In English, okay. yeah. Interesting. Everybody, there was only at the beginning, they had some pilots interrogating us. And, uh, you know, the Italy had uh, for a few years Iraqi pilots in our Air Force, I mean, in our Air Force Academy, you know, so they were trained there. Then uh, they did also some uh, some basic flight and then they were sent back to Iraqi. But that was my period of uh, academies, 1977, 78, so 20 years ago, 30 years before that. So, so you didn't know these? No, absolutely. Okay. And they were speaking a little bit of Italian, but not as good. It had been a while for them. Yeah, they, they, don't, they, they didn't remember. Yeah, it. It, was, it was easier <laughs> for me to speak English with that. Yeah. I gotcha. Oh, wow. So what were they, they were interrogating you. What were they asking? They were asking, uh, I think uh, it, was, it was more of a psychological thing, you know. They were keeping you under pressure all the time. Because the thing that they asked me was something that you could find in any piece of paper or anything mm-hmm. that you look at. Uh, like a Jane's, uh, like a Jane's, or yeah. anything, or a, even Google. Well, at that time, there they was didn't. no Google. <laughs> we but had Jane's back yeah, then. <laughs> yeah, but with Jane's, there was something that uh, you could uh, really get uh, all the information about that. So they were asking very simple thing, and I didn't feel that I didn't have to say anything, you know, because the thing that uh, they asked me was such a basic stuff that you know you can really miss that or. So they were just keeping you under the thumb. There really and was they, no they thumb were, to be They were them. doing that every two days, one day, depends. That's a lot. And, and yeah, it, it is a lot. And they, the atmosphere was really, really scary because, you know, they brought you in a dark place where this lamp was the only thing that... And this guy that is interrogating you is almost outside your view. You can really see it. And sometimes you, you have somebody that is going to punch you up fist in your head or you know it's, it was really tough i'm sure it's some you thought this is it i'm not going to make it did you ever oh, get yeah, to that point many, many times especially after the uh, the 23rd of february after they bombed the uh, prison and they moved us i said i'm not going to make it this is too much for me and uh, i remember we stay 
seven or eight hours outside in front of a big wall, you know, and I was sitting on my knee, basically, you know, and uh, seven hours, seven, eight hours there. It's unbelievable. I mean, I, I couldn't even move after that, you know, and I said, oh, this is too much. I assume it was all pilots that were with you? Uh, yes, most of okay. them, yes. Did any of them not make it? Uh, we had, um, I don't think, the prisoner war, they all made it because uh, there was uh, one that uh, ejected from the F-18. Yeah, I think I was the name. The U.S. Embassy called me to see if I had any information about him. Uh, Slaughter, maybe? No, Slaughter. Uh, uh, but anyway, is the uh, guy that uh, ejected, and they found uh, after the war, after probably a few years ago, they found some remaining of his body, so he, he was killed or uh, he didn't make it. But he wasn't held with He you. wasn't yeah, held yeah, with right. us, and they told uh, the embassy that uh, I never had any, anybody talking about this guy or because they... I mean, they, the beginning was uh, that uh, they were not sure if they kept captives under, the, uh, you know, in captivity, like happened in, during the Vietnam War or other things, you know. But I told him I never had any anybody talking about him or. So I, I assume we're talking about Scott Spikers. Yes, yes. Yeah. So now, now I remember. I remember his name. Yeah, and they. Yeah. So no indications. No, there's no, no bombshell there was here today, right? Nobody. Yeah. Nobody was. Even I mean, among the prisoner war, there was nobody mentioning that at all. I mean, and uh, also the guards, they, nobody ever say that you, name. Were there any other cohorts of pilots anywhere? Or you the only, if you were shot down in, over Iraq, you were in your group? Is that right? Yeah, we okay. were all together, except that we had a few, I think, uh, Kuwaiti, but they were not pilots. They, and they were in the same prison with us after they moved us a lot toward yeah. the end of the war. They were kept in a different floor, so I think it was above us. And there were some families there. There were some women, and uh, I, we had some children too. So there, there was uh, probably a different thing. But uh, So now what, what led them to release you on March 3rd? The end of the war. Because was that, oh, was that, was, the, that was the day, huh? That was okay. the day. Because when they discussed the ceasefire just outside the uh, border for, between uh, Kuwait and uh, Iraq, you know the tent? There was a tent. There was Swarskop and uh, all the um, big general, uh, Kuwaiti general. There was also an Italian general, a few other people there. They discussed that and they said um, part of, uh, of the ceasefire thing was that they need to release all the POWs. And that was the 3rd of March, I think, or the 2nd, I'm not sure. How would they know who was there, though, if they hadn't been sharing the information? They, they take, uh, I think, uh, the um, one of the generals took a list of names, and uh, he showed a list of names, and there was... Uh, With all there, these people back. And then there was uh, also my name there. So um, the, general, the Italian general that was there, phone to the chief of staff in uh, in Italy, the, the, the uh, yeah, Italian Air Force chief of staff. And uh, that guy called my my family and told them he's, he's alive. He's, uh, and it was in, uh, almost in uh, on the same time when some of the of the journalists from the major TV in, uh, in because in Italy it was a completely 
crazy stuff, you know, everybody were all over my family and uh, trying to get information and uh, especially the media, the big media, you know. So one of these uh, journalists was in my house when my father took the the phone. So he, he, he was a big thing. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Jesus. So he, he, this journalist was very lucky because he, he made uh, the announcement in, in almost direct time. I mean, yeah. exactly on the same time. Now, your, your navigator, was he with you as well? He, he was, well, I never saw him in a captivity. He was he the was, same location, he, but you didn't but see him. He, he was kept in another prison or other thing, and uh, he left uh, for Jordan, for the um, Amman in Jordan, by car the day before the second. So the ceasefire was the, the first of uh, March, I think it was, when they signed it. So the second, Maurizio went by car to Amman, and he was handed over to the Italian authority there together with other prisoners, two or three or four. And the next day, they took us to the airport in, uh, in Baghdad, and uh, we flew on a Swiss Air, right across DC-9, I think it was, or uh, something very old. <laughs> and, and, we, and we landed directly to, uh, to Bahrain. Wow. Okay. And then you were repatriated, and... Yeah, I spent uh, almost two days in the... Uh, Navy hospital mm-hmm. at the mercy, the ship basically, you know, and the, it was a great. The, the US, uh, USNS the USS, mercy, right? Yes, and uh, we, we've been there for two days. They treat us like uh, one of them, you know, and it was, it was very good. It was, my cholesterol was very, very low. So I had, yeah, <laughs> I made Because you'd been <laughs> fasting for six weeks. Yes. My cholesterol was so down. Imagine. Small, small victories. Small, small victories on that. So, so now, uh, did your family come to Bahrain to meet you there, or no, did you go home? No, I went to Rome. From Bahrain, we flew on the uh, C-141 to, uh, we landed to Riyadh. And then from Riyadh to Bahrain, C-141, and in Bahrain, we went to the um, naval in hospital. Bahrain or in Bahrain? Okay. In Bahrain. Mm-hmm. We stayed in Bahrain two, two nights, I think it was. Then the next day from uh, Bahrain to Rome, the Air Force brought up uh, executive jet, something like that. Something uh, nice. Yeah. Something nice. <laughs> uh, I had a lot of drinks. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Well, And then you're home, and that's great. And then, then it was home. Yeah. Oh, wow. And so, okay, and then you obviously got back to flying. How long did that take? I'll tell you, when I get home, the first thing I went to, uh, to do a, a physical exam all the, for the Air Force, and they sent me home and said, uh, you're going to have a month of decompression uh, with your family. Don't go somewhere where they don't bother you. And, and so I picked up and went to the Alps. And stay in the middle of the mountain, and it was it was nice. After that month, I went to the to do all the, my physical, and uh, they gave me thirty days of uh, rest, basically. So I got another thirty days of rest, and then after that, they gave me the um, the authorization to fly with another pilot for a month. And I was a flying instructor, so my my pilot, my student, uh, were all military pilot doing the transition to tornado so I, I was doing still doing my my job basically so I started to do my job again without any problem so 
took me two months. Yeah, and it was amazing because when I started, I mean, the, my first flight with my with another instructor, you know, I said, "Damn, I need to." I haven't been to a simulator or anything, so I, f I, I fly directly from. So I said, I need a lot of uh, help here, you know? And uh, so I, I took my checklist, I prepared myself, and then then I sit down, strap in, then start the APU, and then everything started. Hands were moving <laughs> like, like they never stopped. So, right. And it was amazing. You're just right back oh, in. Yeah, Jesus, yeah. it was back to business again. And I did this, uh, my navigator did his first flight with uh, me. So, ah, excellent. Yeah, so. Excellent. Yeah. Did you have any other significant combat missions? No. That's, that's the only one I have. You talked about flying with uh, F-16s. Uh, do you ever, ever do any other advanced training with other force any other countries any others with the united states anything else other than that time no, just UAE? just a time time for uh for my my pilot training basically i did yeah, that laughing uh, and uh, or in u.s we kind of talked about this a little ahead of time so but uh, pretend for the viewers that we haven't but uh you're the honorary council of italy to the united states tell us what that means um i am uh basically doing the function of um consulate in, uh, in the area of Virginia, in the area of uh, North Carolina, South Carolina, all that place, you know. And so I have a lot of customers, which are Italian citizens, living in the area that are coming to my office to do renew the passport or other things, you know. So if, if I'm an Italian in the east area yes. of the United States, and I go, I have a problem where normally I would go to the embassy in D.C. would be my only choice. Instead, I can call you. And you might be that's, might that's, be able to help me. That's what's happened most of the time. Interesting. Okay, I didn't most know that. Most of the time, yeah. And I do that on my free time because it's a honorary council, so I don't receive any pay from. Uh, oh, it's from, a volunteer job. It's a volunteer job. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And I I love to do it. I mean, because I realize that uh, some of the people that are moved in the United States maybe thirty years ago, they still have a lot of uh, contact or connection to Italy still, you know, in place. But it's more and more difficult when time goes by to keep these things going, especially if the bureaucracy is changing or things are changing. So they, you know, and I, I like to do it. I mean, it's uh, something that for the for the time when I be able to do it is a, is a good thing. It's rewarding feel, to help people. I feel, I feel very good, actually. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and then you go fly airplanes yeah, to make a living. Yeah, and then fly right? airplanes. Yes. What's, what's not to love? Oh, that's, that's a perfect <laughs> life, right? <laughs> it is. That's what, a perfect what life. What can you expect? Yeah. <laughs> that's right. So speaking of being a pilot, some of our listeners are aspiring pilots. Maybe they want to go into, maybe they want to be a fighter pilot. Maybe they want to be a, an airline pilot. Do you have any advice for our young listeners who are thinking about being pilots or yeah, I mean, uh, it's uh, something that uh, you need to um, pursue with a lot of confidence, but also with a lot of work. It's not something that you're going to have it like this just because you pay. You have to be very prepared in your everything, and uh, this is the best job ever. It's, there is no other job like this, but you need to love it. I mean, if you don't, 
it's going to be like any other stuff. It can know? it can be a grind. It can be it can be very very boring and very very bad also. It's certainly true that there are times where you're just flying from here to there, and you're staring out the window for about three hours, and and you have to be okay with that. Absolutely, because it's actually better than the alternative, which is there's a firelight and you're yeah. trying to figure out what figure to do. Out what to do? <laughs> exactly. So. Or, or you know, if, especially if you have a passenger on board, I mean, you are responsible for the life of all these guys, you know, and uh, you don't want to play games or be stupid. You got to be smart because otherwise you risk the life of everybody and uh, and yours as well. Yeah. So work hard and uh, just love your flight. We have several Patreon listeners. So Patreon is uh, you know, folks who uh, pay a little extra money for some special access. So we have several Patreon listener questions. It looks like four of them have to do with your time as a guest of the Iraqi government and another six that have more to do with the Italian Air Force and the flying the tornado. So let's start with the ones about captivity just because that's a little bit We'll just start with that. So the first one is from Jim Gundog, and his question is this. What was the one drink or food item you first requested when you were repatriated, and was it the best thing you ever had? It was a a soup of uh, lentils that uh, they gave us the day before they freed us. It was so good that when I came back, I said, I have to have it. And somebody did it for me, and uh, they prepared this soup fantastic. Oh, wow. Fantastic soup of lentils. Interesting. We have two questions that are very similar, so I'm going to group these together. The first is from Sven Weber. He says, did you receive any training for the possibility of becoming a POW? And if so, how tough was it compared to the real thing? And the rhyming question is from Nick Brown. And Nick asks, what kind of training did you receive to survive capture and does the Italian military have something similar to SEER? So basically, what kind of training did you have for being a... We had some training, but uh, it was... Uh, remember, we, we were still in the uh, Cold War area, right? So our training to survive, something like that happens. But the, the environment was completely different. So we had to survive in a jungle, or not jungle, but in an area where... You have uh, houses, you have uh, woods and places where you are, you can hide and you can get some kind of food over there too. So we had this kind of uh, training, which was uh, designed for the mission that we were doing most of the time, but specifically for a desert or for a situation like uh, like the one we had in, uh, in Iraq, we did not have uh, any... There's only so much you can do to simulate yeah, that. Absolutely. I know that the SEER training I went through, SEER is S E R E, survival, evasion, resistance, and escape that's, training. That's what we did, too. I mean, exactly the same thing, but it was designed for a Cold War environment. It was designed to be captured by the Soviets, yes, essentially. Exactly. exactly. Right? I or, mean, or try to escape the Soviets in a, in a yeah. region that it was on the other side of... Uh, and I think the assumption is also that if you were captured by the Soviets or the Warsaw Pact, that they would honor the Geneva Convention. And yeah. Iraq just it was not. Did. It was not the same thing. Yeah. It was not... Uh, so we had to improvise and uh, do whatever, but we didn't have any chance. I mean, it was uh, something that uh, we ejected, and uh, probably I don't have a, a real assumption for that, but... 
probably we were captured immediately because everything was there. They were waiting for us. Probably took them less than half an hour to get you, and and there's a good chance that you were beaten at that point because they, you know, like you were bombing our people. And I mean, you're actually kind of lucky that not only did did you survive the ejection, but you survived the the capture. That's that's what I keep saying. You know, we were lucky to. I was born three times, you know, because one was my actual one. The other one was when I ejected that we didn't crash into the, the other one that uh, uh, the bomb on the 23rd of February didn't uh, kill us. So very lucky, very lucky. And this, I know we've talked about this a little bit, but Michael Tenish asks, as a prisoner of war, did you have contact with other prisoners? And what was the moral effect or morale effect on you? Well, we talk uh, toward the end. We've been on confined cells for most of the time until they bombed the the major, the one that I was talking about, the 23rd of uh, February. After that, they had to share the same facility with the more prison of war. They couldn't uh, put us in the same, in a different cell. Or, or hmm. they, so they put you in like they They, will, they put us in a four or five prison of war in the same cell. And uh, so that we keep, uh, and we were talking about, and uh, most of the time the moral was not bad, actually. We were thinking it's gonna end pretty soon because we, there, there was the uh, the Kuwaiti was listening the radio, and there was some announcement uh, from the, this radio in Arabic, which uh, you know he could understand, he understand but he could. So he he was actually translating to us, mm-hmm. and uh, the most of them were something that uh, Saddam is uh, the greatest or uh, some of the, this bullshit, you know that. Uh, they were transmitting, but some of them were, if you were listening carefully, he said that uh, you can see that uh, there is a, they are almost at the end of resistance and that mm. they probably won't be able to keep it for a long time. So we were pretty confident. So that it was great to have him around. Yeah, so we, we were confident that they would have ended pretty soon, which he did. All right, so let's talk about airplanes. So Joe Kunzler, his question is, so what targets did you go after in Operation Desert Storm? The target was a, a, an ammunition deposit that uh, was um, held by the Iraqi after they invaded the Kuwait. But it was uh, actually... In, it was in Kuwait. It, it, was, was, a, it was in Kuwait, yeah. yes. At the border with uh, with Iraq. Gotcha. So was it, was it actually Kuwaiti munitions that they had... Acquired I, I, don't think, I don't it. think so. They're using it and uh, to, yeah. to keep all the stuff, but it was part of uh, our task. What else, what else was in that target package? There, there was um, another station of uh, transmission that uh, was kept by the Iraqis, so we were trying to, to get rid of those. But the only target that was uh, hit in Kuwait was my target. George Cueso Bravo, his question is this. Were there many differences between the Italian Tornado IDS, the German IDS, or the British GR1 through GR4? So I think we actually talked we about talk that. We talked about that. But, uh, yeah, basically the German and the Italian, they were pretty much the same, same structure, same type of uh, capability. Mm-hmm. GR4 is different. We talk about the laser system that was uh, built in the airplane. They had also... The outside, I mean, they had a, a electronic warfare of the uh, wing, the outside, the, the last uh, 
building is a building pod, yeah, yeah, but it was changeable, so they could wow. they could take it out and uh, bring some something else on it. The ADS, uh, German and Italian, they the electronic uh, warfare was inside the airplane, so we had it mounted in the airplane, so it was not in a pod basically. Then there are a few other differences. All right, Niels Hansen. He asks, how much training prior to Desert Storm did you conduct with coalition partners in order to increase effectiveness and reduce potential mishaps? So you're talking about interoperability yeah. with other foreign governments. So you talked about with the U.S. Air Force. Who else were you, uh, were you we, working with we did uh, We did a lot with uh, German, with uh, the French. We did uh, British a lot. In 1990, we've been through uh, the uh, red flag in, uh, in Ellis Air Force Base. So we were basically pretty well trained to to deal with a big coalition type of uh, of operation, you know, because the red flag you probably remember hundreds of airplanes taking off in the same time, you know, and uh, then uh, you had to deconflict all these things and uh, be able to interoperability was one of the major thing, and uh, we were pretty good in uh, in that, I think. Anthony Lombardo, his question, how many hours were Italian flight crews accruing during Desert Storm? I don't know if you even know that because you weren't flying. <laughs> how about every, everybody who was still flying? How much were they flying? A lot? I think, I think they did uh, 12 or 13 uh, sorties like that or even more of that. I, I'm not sure. So S- roughly six weeks Dozen from, sorties from, from the 18th, week? 18th of uh, January to the uh, 29th of uh, February, basically, because then they stop all the operation there for, for the ground. Uh, the ground operation, you remember, is 100 hours probably. So, so you're not flying a mission every day or maybe no. even every other day, maybe every third day? Every, every yeah. two days, probably, yeah. or every one day. So you come back, rest one day, and then the next day you, you prepare for, for the next one. It's quite a bit. It, it is a lot, yeah. yeah. Michael Durkock, he asks, have you ever flown on Allied Forces exercises with the Slovak Air Force? No, never happened. But I remember I, in, uh, in England when I was a flying instructor there, we were having some kind of uh, operation with uh, Russia because, you know, there was a program for NATO to have Russia into the uh, NATO preparation or something. or And uh, it was a partnership for NATO. It was not really part of NATO, but partnership for NATO. Mm-hmm. And we had a few crews that were coming to England, then landed there and wait, uh, and then go to the officers' club and get a beer, and then we were discussing that. And I remember one of those was a Hungarian crew, and uh, we were talking that they were preparing to bomb our base in northeast Italy, where I was from, and we were preparing to hit <laughs> their base in uh, near near the Balaton Lake, you know, and that was amazing. And so we were discussing that. We couldn't even think of when it was we were preparing for this that one day we would be talking at the bar together. And, yeah, that's uh, amazing. That's amazing. Incredible. It really is. It was a nice period then. Yeah. All right. Last listener question from Patreon uh, from Scott Kelly. Scott asks, did the Italian Air Force also employ the tornado at extreme low level like the Brits? Which, of course, we did, yes. 
And the question is why? Because the aircraft was designed and uh, its best performance was low level. We were training at, uh, in Canada to go down to 100 feet in the Labrador area. And uh, is really impressive. Yeah. Really and like impressive. you said, it's designed for it. It's got terrain-following radar, yes. and that's, that's what it does. And that's a stable, stable, stable platform. You can uh, count on it. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, it has been. An, I, we've got all the questions here. This is great. So, General, this has been an amazing conversation. I really appreciate the time you spent with us today. I feel I have learned a lot, and I hope I've made a friend. Oh, absolutely. Since we are here in the same absolutely. town. Absolutely, And we fly the same airplane now the yeah. weekends. For our listeners, are you active on social media by chance? Uh, yes, I'm. Uh, I'm on on the um, Facebook. You can go and uh, Google my name. It's probably you find me. And uh, what else? I don't, are you on I, Instagram I, or um, no? I'm TikTok? Not, do you do dance videos? No, on no, TikTok? no, you don't. No, 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 no. <laughs> no I think only only the uh, Facebook is the only one that I'm using. Great. Once I'll, in a while, I'll make sure to find you on there, and okay. I'll add you on the way home. Absolutely, it'll be perfect. Absolutely. Not while I'm driving. I'll do that. No, 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 no. <laughs> oh, great. Oh, and uh, we talked about it a little bit that uh, there's a film that you were interviewed on and you talked through a lot of this. I, I saw a snippet of it a little bit. Where would folks go to see that full-length feature documentary, interview, whatever it's, it is? It's probably Veterans of Gulf War, something like that. Well, maybe we could find that and we could put it in. We'll put that in the link or in yeah, the, in the notes gonna, down I'm below. Gonna, we'll figure that out. I'm going to send it to you and, uh, because the owner of the film, is, he said that uh, you know he's not, he's not against it, so be happy to do it excellent so one of the last things we do here on the show is we always like to talk about call sign stories so you have a call sign and it is is strange it's a very unique call sign i they call me from the beginning when i uh, get to the to the squadron i was um with a big bird a beard beard yeah. like a mustache beard and a little bit of uh Hair as well, <laughs> not, not as many, but a little bit. And they call me Puffo. Puffo? Puffo, which means uh, Smurf. <laughs> so, because, you know, you look like a Smurf. Smurf. You look like and, Papa uh, Smurf. And they, it stays like that for uh, all my career, basically. Oh, so, that's so funny. So. Oh, well, that's great. Well, General, thank you very much. Thanks this has been an incredible conversation. Thank you for sharing your story with us. I know that. It's very interesting to our listeners. I don't know if it was hard for you to talk about or no, think absolutely, about. absolutely, absolutely. But I, uh, I think it's really interesting to hear stories about this and, and to see the success that you've gone to. I mean, you're a retired general, honorary counsel, and flying every day still to this day. So, thanks. Thank you. Thank you for having me, and actually. And uh, it's been an honor. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast the internet show that explores the fascinating world of air combat. Visit our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com, for a blog, a glossary of the terms used on this show, and a shop page featuring unique military aviation-themed books and apparel. Check out our YouTube channel to watch hundreds of military aviation-themed videos. And for exclusive content, head on over to our Patreon page. Thanks for listening.
thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.